You guys sound wonderful. Let me add my welcome to Zach's and Kayo's. My name's Kevin. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at Grace Fellowship. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. A few things that are going on in the life of our church, especially as we approach the the Thanksgiving and the Christmas season. Uh, We are putting together a Thanksgiving, uh, a community Thanksgiving feast. We've done this in years past. Our deacons are heading this up. And it will be the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Uh, In years past, we've had it off-site, but this year we're going to have it here in our fellowship hall. Uh, And what we are asking of you is not just that you would come and help serve. We certainly uh, would love for you to do that. Uh, We want you to come. We want you to eat. Uh, That's, you know, what Thanksgiving is all about. Uh, But we also also want you to come ready to uh, have a meal with strangers, uh, with people from our community that you may not know. Come ready to uh, engage folks in conversation as you eat. Come ready to share the table. So uh, if you are wanting to help out in any way, uh, please contact Rob Palmer. He's one of our deacons who's heading this up. Uh, if you actually would all turn and look right down the middle, Rob is the guy right in the center covering his face. That's the guy to talk to. That's the guy to talk to. Um, so uh, that's coming up. Also, uh, it's time to, uh, after Thanksgiving, we'll be getting our Uh, sanctuary uh, ready for Christmas because we don't decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving. Um, But we will decorate for Christmas right after Thanksgiving. Uh, And something that we're doing new this year is we're actually going to have a Grace Fellowship family Christmas tree. So um, this is not something that every uh, visitor has to do. But if you are a part of Grace Fellowship, we would love for you to bring an ornament uh, that represents your family to hang on the family Christmas tree. Uh, and so you can, you can start bringing those uh, as soon as you like. Uh, we're going to try to get them on the tree, uh, start decorating the Friday after Thanksgiving. So, um, but if, you want, if, if you're not ready by then, right, if you still have to find the perfect ornament, you can bring it after that, and we'll put it on the tree. This is, this is Grace Fellowship, so you've got some time. All right. All uh, right. Let's give our attention to God's Word. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, uh, we're, we're following the life of Jesus as it is told by his disciple Matthew. Uh, we call this the Gospel of Matthew. Also, uh, more maybe more appropriately, the good news according to Matthew. And Matthew structures his gospel this way. All right, this is, so there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matt, and each of them write a little bit differently. They all write about the life of Jesus, but each of them write a little bit differently. What Matthew does is he structures his telling of the life of Jesus around five blocks of teaching. Uh, we already looked at one in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we're about to look at another one in Matthew chapter 10. In between that, what Matthew does is he tells some narrative. He tells a little bit more of the story of Jesus. And what we're going to look at today is a transition between narrative and teaching. Uh, Telling the story and uh, telling what Jesus taught. Uh, So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 uh, through chapter 10, verse 4. Uh, If you don't have your own Bible, we'd love for you to grab that one that's in the chair right there. You should find today's passage on page 814. 
And as we read, I just want to point out that we're leaving a section where Jesus has revealed his power and authority through miracles. We spent some time talking about that. And now we're entering a new section uh, of Jesus' teaching where he directs it, uh, directed his 12 closest followers. So let's read God's word. Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, And Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, as we have listened to your word read, and now we listen to it preached. We pray, Holy Spirit, that it would come with power to our hearts, that we would see you, Jesus, portrayed as crucified and resurrected and Lord of all, that we would see you, that we would be in awe of you, that we would fall in love with you, and that we would be transformed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at three, three words today, right? Feeling, perspective, and action. Those, that, that's a typical progression that we follow. We feel something, we have a certain way of looking at things, and that moves us to action. And just to demonstrate this, uh, we were at the at Neighborhood Grill on Friday night eating dinner, uh, and there was a news channel on one of the TVs, uh, and they played a, a commercial for their Sunday afternoon program, uh, and that commercial had some pretty sensational hooks. Now, you know what a hook is, right? It's, when you, it's, it's what you say to get people interested. And so it was something like this, um, government shutdown again, question mark, budget showdown in November, question mark, right? Now, if you've been paying any attention to the news, and I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, um, those questions really aren't questions. Uh, those things really shouldn't come as a surprise because uh, this was expected back when we passed the last budget resolution. But this is what marketers do. This is what marketing is. They appeal to our feelings so that we will see things a certain way, get a certain perspective, And then we will be moved to action, right? Feeling, perspective, action. 
And we see something similar going on in this passage, except it's about Jesus. For the first time, Matthew gives us a look at the interior life of Jesus. We look at Jesus' feelings, right? We see what Jesus feels. Uh, Matthew tells us what Jesus sees, his perspective. And then out of that, what Jesus commands. And so that's how we're going to look at this passage today. First, what Jesus feels. Verse 35 gives us a summary of everything that Jesus has been up to, up to this point. Right? He describes Jesus' ministry with three words. It says that he was teaching in their synagogue. So every Sabbath, every Saturday, Jesus was in the synagogues teaching from the scriptures. He was teaching. He was preaching or proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He was announcing that God's kingdom had come. And we've seen him do this already. We've looked at passages where he's done this. And he was healing. And that's what we saw when we looked at chapters 8 and 9. We looked at his miracles and how those miracles demonstrated his authority and power. And I think what's important for us to see is that Jesus' ministry of word is accompanied by deeds. Jesus' ministry is one of word and work. And the works prove the words. Jesus' miracles, his good works, prove his good word. But word and deed go together. It's not an empty ministry of just word. It is a ministry of word and deed. And it's in the midst of that ministry that Matthew tells us what Jesus is feeling. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. So Jesus sees all of these men and women and boys and girls coming to him with their desperate needs, and he meets those needs. But Matthew tells us he is moved with compassion, with pity, with mercy. B.B. Uh, Warfield was an American theologian who lived around the turn of the 20th century. He writes a little book, a helpful little book, called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Uh, I encourage you to pick that up. You can actually find it for free online where he walks through some of the different emotions that are attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. Um, but in his book, he says that this emotion, compassion, is the one that is most attributed to Jesus. So more than any other emotion that Jesus feels or is recorded to have felt, compassion is number one. And as Warfield says, that compassion is grounded in love. That Those two go together. So out of love, Jesus feels compassion. And the word that's used here is related to the word for your intestines. That's, that's the word, right? The word, the word would have described your guts. But that makes sense, doesn't it? You ever felt something so deeply that you had that, that pit in your stomach that you yearned to do something? That's what Jesus is feeling when he sees the crowds. That's the level of his compassion. He feels it deep down. We might say, if we can say it without being blasphemous, he feels it deep down in his guts. He feels compassion. And what is it that moves Jesus to compassion? It's what he sees. What does Jesus 
see. What Jesus sees, what moves Jesus to compassion, look again at verse 36. He sees people that are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So he sees not just their physical need, not just that they're sick, or not just that they're demon-possessed. He sees that, but underneath that, underneath that physical need, he sees their spiritual need. Listen to Warfield again. They, the crowds, are compared to sheep which have been worn out and torn by running hither and thither through the thorns with none to direct them and have now fallen helpless and hopeless to the ground. The sight of their desperate plight awakens our Lord's pity and moves him to provide the remedy. That's how, that, that's what Jesus sees. The Bible uses this imagery of sheep all the time to describe God's people. And I've got some bad news. It's not because sheep are cute and fluffy. It's because sheep are needy and dependent. They have no natural defenses, and they get themselves into lots of trouble, especially if they're not looked after. Maybe you've seen the, the video. It's a short one of the, the sheep whose head is stuck in the ditch. It's trapped. It can't get out. And so the shepherd comes along and, and grabs his back feet and yanks him out. And the sheep is so happy, he bounds and bounds and bounds and goes right back into the ditch. Yeah, that describes my life with Jesus. Jesus sees helpless sheep. Now, usually when we use that word to describe people, we don't use it in the compassionate way that Jesus uses it. Right? Usually when we talk about other people being sheep, we mean that they're ignorant. Right? That they're easily led astray by politics and media, right? The sheeple. And of course, when we use that word that way, what we're, what we're saying is that we are the enlightened and educated. We are not the sheeple. That's not what Jesus sees, right? That attitude of scorn and contempt, that actually is closer to the way that the scribes and Pharisees view the masses. They saw themselves as enlightened, uh, as the, the people who had it all figured out. Uh, but that's not what Jesus sees, and that's not what Jesus feels towards these helpless sheep. He sees their true need. He sees our true need, and he doesn't despise. He doesn't feel scorn. He feels compassion. But he also sees something else, and this is very important. Not only does Jesus see a helpless crowd of sheep who need a shepherd. But look at verse 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. So he changes the metaphor, right? He sees helpless sheep, and when he looks at them and he feels compassion, he also sees a picture of hope, of opportunity. He sees a field ripe for harvest. His perspective is not diminished by their need. 
In fact, it's their very need. It's looking at their need. It's looking at our need that causes Jesus to say, what a great opportunity. God's harvest is ripe and ready to be picked. So Jesus looks at a situation of despair and he sees hope. We live in an age of great need. And I have to confess that when I am confronted with that need, I do not often feel what Jesus feels. And I do not see what Jesus sees. What about you? What do you feel when you look at the world around you? What do you see? Are you moved with compassion? Or are you moved with contempt? Or are you overwhelmed with despair and worry? Do you see opportunity for God to work? Or do things look hopeless and bleak? Because how you feel and what you see will determine how you act. And what Jesus sees and feels moves him to command his followers to act in a certain way, to do something. And what is it? What is it that Jesus commands? He sees this great opportunity. He sees a field ready to be harvested. But there's a problem. There's not enough workers. And so what does he tell us to do? He tells us to develop a strategy and a marketing plan. No, that's not what he says. He says, ask for help. He says, pray. And the word pray here means to ask, means to beg, to pray earnestly. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Do you notice who the harvest belongs to? It belongs to the Lord. It's so important that Jesus says it twice. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. It's his harvest. And the workers are his too. Right? He's the one who's going to provide the workers. All they have to do is ask. To pray. And I find it interesting that Jesus himself is the one who is telling them to pray. He doesn't, you know, step back and crack his knuckles and say, all right, fellows, watch this. He doesn't do a magic trick to bring in the harvest. No, he says, guys, let's ask for help. This this job is too great, and the workers are too few, so let's ask for help. I want to connect that with what we've already seen. The way that you answered those other questions, how you feel and what you see. What's your first response to the woes and the needs of the world? Because if all, if all I see is how bad things are and all I feel is despair, then there are a couple of likely responses. One, and this may be chief among them, is complaining. I will gripe about how bad things are. 
I will have a false and nostalgic view of how, how good things used to be. Uh, and those things, right, complaining, nostalgia, what that's going to draw you to is really the opposite of faith. It's going to draw you into cynicism, right? Doesn't do any good. I'm just going to gripe about it. I'm going to gripe about it with the other people who see things the way that I see things. Or I'm going to gripe about it publicly on social media so that everybody who doesn't want to know what I think will, think, will get to know what I think anyway. Right? <laughs> Complaining is one response. The other response is escape. That, that I get so overwhelmed with what I see that all I want to do is withdraw and Netflix. Veg out or doom scroll. And that one, that's kind of like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. I often don't find that I feel a whole lot better about the state of the world when I scroll. In contrast to those, in contrast to complaining or escaping, Jesus says, pray. Ask the Lord to send workers into the harvest. Now, is that being naive? Is Jesus being naive? Is that what we're doing when we pray? We just kind of bury our heads in the sand, you know, like, like the child who's like, oh, if I close my eyes and just pretend that it all goes away, it'll all go away. No, not at all. Remember, this is Jesus' response when he sees the need. He's not ignorant of the need. In fact, he knows it far better than we do. He's not ignorant of what's going on. He sees how much sin has caused havoc in the world. And it moves him to pray. So, so this strategy is not naive. It doesn't mean that we ignore what's going on in the world. It doesn't mean we ignore the bad things. But it means we actively engage them by praying about it. That we seek the Lord's face. We have to admit, right? The, the reason that we pray is because the need is too great. The need is too great for us to meet it in our own strength. And that's the problem that most of us have. We, we think, right? Because our wealth and our work can accomplish things, we're blind to just how incompetent and impotent we are to affect real change. Because we think we can do it. We think we can muscle it. We can, or we have a wrong view of what the need really is. But either way, right, when, when we pray, we're admitting, okay, Lord, I can't, I can't do anything. You have to work. You have to move. And as you're praying that, you're also praying, Lord, where do I need to work? Again, that, that's the prayer right here, that we seek the Lord, we ask the Lord to bring workers into the harvest. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're saying, all right, what's my part of the field? Which row am I supposed to gather grain on? Right? What we're doing when we pray is we're asking God to do what we cannot we're asking God to work. Oswald Chambers, a, a popular Christian author, 
says this. Prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Hudson Taylor took the gospel to China. Said this. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Andrew Murray, another Christian author, said this. Time spent in prayer will yield more than that given to work. Prayer alone gives work its worth and its success. Prayer opens the way for God himself to do his work in us and through us. So let our chief work as God's messengers be prayer. Christian, if we were truly convinced of all of these things, if we felt as Jesus felt and saw the need as Jesus saw it, then we would be praying all the time. Our prayer meetings would be overflowing if we were convinced of these things. And so that's what Jesus invites us to. Right? It was a great harvest. There was great need in that day. It's a great need in our day. It was a great harvest in Jesus' day, and that is still true. And the harvest still needs people, right? It still belongs to the Lord, and it still needs workers to go into it. Now, if you're here this morning, and you don't think that you fit that category, right? maybe you're trying to figure out, you're still trying to figure out, where do I stand with Jesus? What does it look like to, to trust in him and follow him? And so I want to go back to what Jesus saw and say this again, that the true need people have is not more money, it's not a better job, it's not better circumstances. My true need is I need a shepherd. On my own, I'm lost in sin, and I'm harassed, and I'm thrown down. And I need a shepherd to lead me and feed me and protect me. And here's the good news. There is such a shepherd. His name is Jesus. And I invite you to come to him this morning. Right? Do you want to run and hide? Because the shame for what you've done is so great. Ashamed of who you are. Do you want to... Do you want to Run away from God? I want you to see the compassion of Jesus here. He feels compassion. Not indifference, not disgust, compassion. He wants you to know him. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to trust him with your life. We sang it already. Come ye souls by sin afflicted, bowed with fruitless sorrow down, by the broken law convicted, through the cross behold the crown. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that 
we would see you as our good shepherd. As the one who has come to truly meet what our souls most desperately need. To be led, to be fed, to be protected, to be forgiven, to be made new. Lord Jesus, that's what you offer us, and I pray that we would receive it by resting in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to feel the compassion that you feel when we see the world in disarray and evil and chaos. Not lack of concern, but that we would move towards it in compassion. Lord, and that we would see what you see. Help us to see beyond what's presenting itself on the surface. And help us to see things with your sight. To see a, a, a ripe harvest ready to be brought in. And then would you move us to act. To pray. To pray that you would send laborers, workers into the harvest including us, would you do by your power what we cannot do? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.